Welcome to the first ever completely all remote Talking Under Water. No, I did it wrong. Welcome to the first ever all completely remote Talking Under Water podcast episode. Dun, 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 dun. Golden. I mean, that's, that's all for me. Signing off. <laughs> This episode of Talking Underwater is brought to you by Census, a Xylem brand. Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water. One podcast. I'm Katie Johns, the Managing Editor of Stormwater Solutions. I'm Lauren Belcello, Managing Editor for Water Quality Products. And I'm Bob Crossan, Senior Managing Editor for Water Waste Digest. In this month's episode of Talking Underwater, we'll talk about the water sense renewal and the anniversary of the Flint water crisis, along with some other industry news. We'll also dig into some results of our COVID-19 business impact surveys. Finally, our interview this month is with Nicole McClellan, water process specialist for Stantec and Art Umble, Senior Vice President and Global Wastewater Treatment Sector Leader for Stantec, to talk about the impact COVID-19 is having on the water industry. From technology to monitoring water quality, we covered a lot of ground. Um, but first, we do have some industry news, so I will let Lauren take it away. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Katie. Um, so I did definitely want to start by acknowledging that this is our first ever completely remote podcast. Normally, all of us hosts are in one room together, um, just chatting with each other about the latest industry news and um, presenting the interviews for you. So today in light of COVID-19, we're based in Illinois, so we are all working remotely and um, recording this completely from the phone today. So just wanted to acknowledge that this is a special episode in that way. Um, obviously, the news cycle right now is pretty completely dominated with coronavirus concerns, COVID-19 questions. So I did want to start the podcast off with just a few positive notes to get the ball rolling. First of all is EPA's water sense has been renewed. Uh, water sense has helped conserve 3.4 trillion gallons of water and more than $84 trillion. That's according to EPA statistics that are through 2018 and reported by CNN. Um, so that's definitely a bright spot for the, the water and plumbing industry, especially the WQP audience. The other point that I wanted to be sure to touch on, I would be remiss not to mention that April 25th is the six-year anniversary of the Flint water crisis, specifically when the city of Flint switched its water source from the Detroit Water and Sewerage Department to the Flint River temporarily while it constructed a pipeline to connect to the Karagandi Water Authority. And this action and the subsequent decision to not treat Flint water with corrosion control chemicals is what spurred the state of emergency in the city um, receiving the lead contamination in its municipal drinking water system. So I, I reflect on this anniversary every year. I've covered it in print in uh, see the four-year anniversary and the five-year anniversary. Uh, and I just wanted to take a quick moment to talk about growth. So you know, since the Flint water crisis started originally in 2014, it's really opened up communication about um, drinking water concerns, lead contamination, and helped raise consumer awareness for what the water industry does. So um, that's what I always think of as the silver lining is that 
helped us get some good conversations going and um, driving us into 2020. Um, just recently, just this past month, the Pittsburgh Water and Sewer Authority announced that it will remove thousands of lead water pipes by 2026. Pittsburgh faced some lead contamination problems for several years as well. And similarly, Newark, New Jersey, which we've covered in the podcast before, um, that also has lead contamination concerns, has made the progress recently on their 30-year lead service replacement program that began in late 2019. So there are some silver linings. There's a little bit of positivity we can look out for. And I just wanted to make sure to call that out before we continue into discussions of COVID, which is on everybody's mind right now. Yeah, um, it, it is good to reflect on that, though. I think that's it's such an, a pivotal point in uh, drinking water treatment and that in the industry as a whole and the importance of it. So it's really important that we do take note of that, even with coronavirus dominating everything else. Well, um, moving on from that, Flint, though, um, the big news for coronavirus stuff right now that we are facing is the cancellation of American Water Works Association annual convention and exposition. The AWWA president, Jim Williams, and CEO, David LaFrance, both uh, penned this letter out to people who were planning to attend or exhibit um, or who were following the show. Um, so I wanted to share, this is a direct verbatim from the letter. Um, you can get more information on our website about that or visit the AWWA website. Um, but here's the direct verbatim from their letter. Protecting public health is AWWA's first core principle with the coronavirus pandemic still unfolding, leading health authorities are asking people to avoid travel and to practice social distancing. It's uncertain when these guidelines might change. With the conference less than 10 weeks away, we are recording this currently on April 10th, it is hard to imagine a scenario in which we could move forward with the full conference. Please find details on refunds, hotel and airline cancellations, exhibit and sponsor questions, and other information on the ACE website. So I, I, I am saddened by this because I, I do look forward to ACE. Um, but I understand entirely why they would want to do this. It's, I mean, it's clear that they're putting public health above everything else here, and that's such a cornerstone to me for drinking water and for wastewater, for that matter. So um, I don't know if either of you had any comments that you wanted to say on, on this subject. I mean, I would just add, oh, man, we can't see each other, so we're talking over each other. Go ahead, baby. No, I was just going to say, all I would add is that I appreciate them putting public health um, first, as always, but I am bummed. But I'm interested to see, you know, how people will continue networking and continuing their education. So that's all I was going to add about it. Yeah, my thoughts kind of align with that closely in that even though a lot of the workforce right now is, well, first and foremost, everybody's working situation is different right now, right? You know, some people are having to go into their workplace and be cautious. Some people are having to adjust to a remote work schedule. Some people are still going into work as normal, and some people are facing um, a lack of work at the moment. But regardless of what your work situation is, we have to find a way to maintain the relationships that we build and maintain communication both, you know, with our customers, with our readers, uh, with our listeners in any way that we can. So while we can't gather particularly right now, we can still look for other avenues like thank you technology 
to um, connect with each other and continue pushing forward the best interests of the industry. Yeah, well, and it's cool that you brought that up because uh, we've been using that for all of us have been using these distance technologies, not only to work with each other, but also to work with people out, outside our organization. And um, recently I had the opportunity to help moderate a webinar on the subject of coronavirus and share some of our market impact survey results and talk to this panel of experts that I had put together on kind of what their experience was like. But I wanted to touch on two uh, quick things regarding that, those survey results. The first is a matter of the severity of the impact from on this survey. Um, this was pretty well split down the middle, leaning maybe a little more on the severe side with 10% taking up, saying that there would be a severe impact um, due to COVID-19. 41% said there would be a sizable impact, so that's one step below severe. Uh, moderate impact leans more toward the no impact side, and that took up 42%. And then the remainder, which is about 5.5% to 6%, said there would be no impact. Um, so to me, the sizable impact and moderate impact being about 40% each um, really indicates kind of the it indicates two things, that the timing of the survey that we took, because this is like right at the end of March, at the beginning of April, right when we were first starting to self-quarantine and we were talking about social distancing. So there was there was a lot of uncertainty at that time. And I think that this graph is pretty representative of that feeling. Um, but then the other thing I wanted to talk about, too, is project delays and project cancellations. Uh, we did have a question asking if projects were going to be delay uh, delayed. Uh, cancel it entirely or that there would be no change. And the delay percent was only about three to four percent of respondents, that, or sorry, only three to four percent said that there would be cancellations and about 80 percent said that there would be delays. And the timeline most representative of that of the delay seems to be about three to four months, which aligns with a lot of the communication that we've received from the White House in terms of maybe by July or August, things could return to some level of normal, normalcy. But um, I know, Katie, you also had a survey and you are working on doing a webinar as well. Could you share some of uh, what you found from the stormwater side? Yeah, so um, the stormwater survey is still open, but preliminary results um, show that um, right now, 47.12% of respondents expect the coronavirus to have a sizable impact on their business, um, and that is specifically in the interest of demand. Um, and then the other notable point I wanted to bring up today is that 80.26% expect projects to be postponed, and um, fortunately, when asked if any projects were anticipated to be canceled, 60.16% sorry, 60.16 said no, they would not be canceled. So, I think that's a positive, um, and those were the two most notable ones I have right now. I will be sharing more of these results on April 30th at 2 p.m. Central Time to close out our SWS Webinar Fest, so tune in to that webinar for the full results and for a panel of with experts as well. Um, and before, before we move on, I forgot yeah. to mention also that you can uh, view the webinar that I conducted at bit.ly slash WWDCOVID webinar, and you can see the whole thing. Um, or you can, if you can't find it that way, just visit our website. It should be pretty easy to find there. Perfect. And this kind of leads right into the interview I had 
with Nicole McClellan and Art Umble from Stantec. Um, so we will go ahead and play that interview for you. So I am here with Nicole McClellan and Art Umbel with Stantec, and today we're going to talk about COVID-19 and its impact on the water industry. Nicole and Art, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I know everyone's workflows and schedules have been altered, so I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Yep. Thanks um, for having us. Yeah. Thank you. And so just to kind of get started, I'm going to start with like a, an overview question. So what are some immediate impacts you guys are seeing to the water and wastewater industries right now? Nicole, I'll, let uh, you I'll start respond. if you like. Go ahead. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. <laughs> um, I think the immediate impacts we saw were similar to the general population, which was figuring out how to properly social distance, um, especially if we have to go to work and are considered essential workers or an essential industry. Um, a lot of municipalities have looked at how they can modify their shift changes, for example, and uh, their shift change meetings are being held, you know, over the phone or more remotely than in person. Um, in terms of operations, they're looking at, you know, what they would consider to be essential work or critical work um, versus more routine maintenance that can be, you know, set aside for a month or two or more if they need to. Um, and generally, there's concerns around what kind of PPE might be recommended or what changes to those recommendations might come through the regulatory agencies or the health um, agencies um, with respect to COVID-19. Art, what do you have to add to that? That's a good good uh, start, absolutely. The only thing I would add is uh, there's where it is applicable and where it's available. Uh, we're finding more operators doing a lot more monitoring remotely, uh, be it through their cell phones, through their iPad and so forth that have connectivity into various components of their plants and facilities, which they had been doing before, but now uh, finding uh, um, opportunities here to really expand those capabilities as much as they can. It obviously isn't present in all plants and all locations. Um, and for those that don't have that, as uh, as Nicole mentioned, you know, there's a lot of exchange of information between shifts that is being done remotely. And so many operators are learning a lot about how to accurately dis, uh, distribute information that occurred during their shift and needs to be passed on to a following shift, et cetera. Um, those are really things that have tightened up that whole communications process within the utilities themselves to, in, in a very good way. Yeah, and and I, you know, we've talked about this a couple other times, but, you know, it seems like now, especially with everyone being remote, technology is playing a really big part. I mean, even right now, this, you know, this interview is all over the phone. So do you think that, you know, having COVID-19 make everyone work remotely is kind of increasing the use of technology in the industry? You know, it's a really really good question. Yeah, it's a really good question. And I would just say that, what we're learning with the virtual environment of information exchange is two things. Number one, I think we're learning that the technology providers of such platforms have greatly accelerated the availability of these platforms so that more of it can be used. They've greatly improved the technological um, status, if you will, of how these platforms function. 
And so I will be very interested to see, honestly, after this is all passed, and again, I think it kind of depends upon the duration of this event, but after it's all passed, how much behavioral change has taken place um, in all of our professional lives, not just in utilities, on how these platforms will now become more common, more normally used. I think the issue is really going to be around bandwidth, right? So I think it may accelerate the whole nation, the whole North American continent into 5G kind of networks much, much more rapidly than we've been moving. And if that happens, I think you will see some uh, significant behavioral shifts in how we utilize uh, virtual exchange of information. And that kind of leads into my next question, which, um, you know, since the outbreak, a lot of industry events have been canceled or postponed. Um, and I've talked with some other industry professionals who think that even after COVID-19 is gone, people might still be wary to travel for a while. So how do you see this pandemic affecting, you know, those large in-person networking events and conferences that a lot of people rely on not only for business but also to get continuing education credit? Yeah, I think um, it's a little difficult to predict the future and how the return to normalcy will be. We are all very curious about what that will look like. Um, I think certainly the public is better educated about you know, how to reduce the transmission of communicable illnesses like respiratory viruses. Um, but how this will specifically impact the water industry, it's hard to say. Um, I do think that as Art pointed out, this will push us to think about how we can use technology more in our industry, um, particularly maybe smaller organizations. Um, and so we may see more, more of a combined rollout of those types of meetings and conferences with more, you know, video conferencing and that kind of thing. Um, but our industry, you know, historically has many in-person conferences of that type, as you point out. So it may be difficult to push away from that. Yeah. Art, anything to add? or? Well, the only thing I would add would be the fact that there's behavioral change that has to take place. And so the duration of this current event that we're experiencing will probably have an influence on the degree by which our behavior from what we're used to being face-to-face, -face, how that changes into being more open and eager and accepting and tolerant of uh, virtual platforms. But I do believe that there's a physical practicality that ties to that as well. And in all of North America, you know, the bandwidth of virtual systems in terms of our, our um, cyberspace, if you will, uh, is going to be accelerated immensely as a result of this. And as a result of that acceleration, I think there's going to be a much broader array of usable platforms for these kinds of things to happen. And so technically, I think if the physical infrastructure, and this would mean driving 5G and those kinds of things all across the continent, uh, would basically open the door very quickly to a lot of organizations moving into those kinds of environments and actually... I would suspect that it allows for an even greater access to information such that, for example, getting education hours to support your certifications or professional development credits and these kinds of things actually become more available and easier to, to come by. <laughs> and uh, then that will raise the question, you know, that, well, are we diluting these things? So I think there's a lot of interesting questions that go along with this. but. Uh, as Nicole said, you know, we won't be able to predict the future until we see it. Right. Yeah. And um, kind of shifting gears here, um, as 
Um, you know, many in the United States know the first stimulus package here did not include the water sector. But now um, House Democrats are seeking $25 billion in the next one to replace aging water and wastewater infrastructure. How important is this to the water industry? So if you want, Nicole, I can take that one. Um, since I have had some awareness of what's going on there at the political level, let me just say this. Um, you are correct. Uh, this $2.2 trillion stimulus package is basically being distributed in phases. And the first, we're on phase four now, and the first three phases, there were no allocations per se for the water and wastewater industry. There were, however, about $150 billion of allocation that were uh, significantly distributed to states and local governments, but there was no guidance on how those governments were needing to use that. And so the option of using it for infrastructure often got put on the side and the governments were using them to offset their budget shortfalls um, that they were experiencing while addressing various uh, issues associated with the COVID-19 challenge. And so in the concern is currently with the fourth phase of this distribution, and you are right, there's uh, the House side has sought $25 billion. The Senate, however, uh, hasn't yet approved that. What's interesting is that our National Association of Clean Water Agencies, or NACWA, uh, has, which is pretty much a representative of our wastewater industry in the United States, um, they find that their need currently to date to respond to the COVID challenge is about $12.5 billion. We have not seen anything from AWWA, which is the American Water Works Association, yet that's been published on their needs estimate for drinking water agencies. But my hunch is, is that the U.S. Congress has estimated that, well, the $12.5 billion on the wastewater side, let's just double that on the drinking water side, and that's where the $25 billion has come from. The National League of Cities, the U.S. Conference of Mayors, National Association of Counties, so forth, a number of these associations, they're all on a united front on their request, and they have actually now formally requested $150 billion for the water and wastewater industry as part of this next distribution. That remains completely negotiable. Obviously, our U.S. Senate, I'm sorry, the states, when they receive this money, their focus is going to be on getting employment recovery back in shape, and the Senate itself is focused really on business bailouts. And so, we, remember, we remain in the water and wastewater industry very concerned that uh, there will still be a great lack of attention paid to the infrastructure needs that we have uh, to be able to address this. And so that's kind of where it stands. Um, we don't know where it's going to fall out, but I, I'm, I'm hopeful that some of these requests will, will find their way down, especially to smaller communities. For sure. And um, we actually have um – all of our water brands, we have um, business impact surveys out now, and one of the questions is just kind of asking those who take it what kind of the, the biggest challenge COVID-19 is posing to them, and some of the answers have been, you know, whether it's staffing or a delay in project or a cancellation in project. So what do you think the, that those the biggest challenges right now that are – sorry, I'm going to rephrase that. What do you think are – the biggest challenges COVID-19 is bringing to the stormwater and wastewater industries. Nicole, you want to take that one? <laughs> I might need a minute to think about that one. Do you have something off the top of your head? Well, I can at least respond to part of this. Um, you know, there is evidence that 
this particular coronavirus strain has been connected with um, infected populations in the feces of that population because it's been detected in the sewage that comes from those sewer sheds. And so uh, when we say detected, we say we mean that in the terms of the RNA extracted from those samples has been sequenced to the point that it uh, profiles this particular uh, strain of virus. Whether or not the virus is still viable to be infective is an elusive conversation because the research still is uh, not clear on what we've learned about that. That said, those communities that are combined sewer communities under heavy wet weather conditions, often those sewers will overflow into the receiving water bodies in their local water environments. In those cases, yes, it's possible because of this evidence that we have now seen that there could be traces of this particular virus present and it could be that the virus remains viable. There was evidence to show that that viability can be anywhere from three hours to three days in the water environment and there's evidences for both. And so it's possible and that that could be present. A similar case could be applied to a community that uses separate sewer systems but is heavily influenced by um, a lack of maintenance of the infrastructure to where the infiltration and inflow during a wet weather event overwhelms those systems and they also can overflow at certain points again into the local environment that may or may not be into a local um, receiving water body. It could just be into a drainage ditch or something or someone's backyard and these kinds of things. And so in all these cases, and I would strongly recommend that whenever personnel are associated with having to do maintenance or having to monitor or having to do corrective conditioning around these kinds of locations where these events can occur, they, they absolutely need to take the full precaution uh, that we would use in any case uh, to protect against the possible contagion that, of the that this virus brings. And so that's, that's my thought. And Nicole, I'll, you know, whatever you would like to add, it'd be fine. Yeah, I think I'll just elaborate on that in that, um, you know, what we found in the literature with respect to SARS-1 from 2002, which has a similar um, molecular structure to what we know about COVID-19. Um, we know that SARS-1 survived in raw wastewater for up to a couple of days um, and that it's readily inactivated by, you know, thermal inactivation um, and some chemical disinfectants and oxidants. Um, but once it's in a surface water source, like after a CSO or an overflow or a bypass, its survival might be longer. Or I shouldn't say survival, I should say persistence. They're not really alive, but um, remaining infectious or active. And so... We believe that uh, a large amount of that inactivation in raw wastewater is due to biological activity of other microbes that are in that water, and that activity is less once it's sort of diluted in a surface water. So the persistence in a surface water could be um, a couple weeks or a month under cold water conditions or around five degrees so Celsius. Um, so certainly that heightens the concern around CSOs. Um, so I think one of the focuses coming out of this event is that the industry wants better and faster detection and monitoring for these types of pathogens. 
we need improved methods for isolating and detecting viruses in water in general. Um, and we need to be able to weather, to say whether that risk is to human health, whether those viruses are actually infectious or if they are, you know, we're just detecting the DNA and that only tells us a little bit of the story. And I think the point that I'll add in terms of the, the big message that we're seeing from the industry is clear guidance on specific PPE. They want to know exactly what type of PPE they should be using for various types of work um, and better education on how to use those devices like gloves and different types of masks and, and those kinds of barriers that they can, that they can use. Okay. Yeah. Thank you both for the, those points. And, um, you know, one of the biggest concerns that, you know, everyday consumers have that a lot of municipalities are having to answer is like, is my drinking water safe? And so I guess what, you know, advice or points can you give to municipalities, you know, to communicate back to their residents? Mm -hmm. One of the things that we learned in our sort of literature review based on the structure of this virus is that it's not more resistant to the common types of disinfection or treatment processes that we use in our drinking water treatment or other human viruses that might be in the source water. So uh, we would expect that the current disinfection practices are more than sufficient to prevent um, COVID-19 that may be in the water supply uh, from passing through all of those barriers in our multiple barrier, multiple barrier approach to providing drinking water. So it's always a, a complex issue when we try to convince the public that their tap water is safe. And I think it's a fair concern if we say, you know, if they kind of get the message that it may survive in water. Um, but we know that soap and water, for example, has been communicated to be very effective. And it's just highly susceptible to the types of disinfectants or UV that we use in drinking water treatment. Okay. And, um, you know, as my last question, um, that kind of ties back to what we were saying, you know, with wet weather events, you know, we're in springtime now, which tends to mean more rain for a lot of regions across the country and which could lead to flooding. And then, you know, hurricane season starts in June for the Atlantic. So how can the industry prepare or prepare to handle these potential flooding and other storm risks while also handling coronavirus? And what are some challenges there? Go ahead, Nicole. Um, right now, we are sort of sticking with the recommendations that we've made for um, the potential risk of COVID in the environment. We expect that uh, the concentrations in the environment are very low um, in environmental waters. And we expect that the transmission risk then is probably quite low. Um, but in areas where you might have CSOs, we are recommending um, that those be posted or that message being sent out, however you normally would educate um, your population that there's been a CSO event, and then restricting access to those locations. So as we talked about how it may survive for weeks in a surface water source, um, given that the concentration is quite low, I would at least leave that signage up for, say, a week after the event um, and sort of getting at it that way. 
Okay, great. Well, Nicole and Art, thank you so much for all of this insight. I found it really valuable. Is there anything else you either of you want to add before we wrap up today? I do have uh, one comment to add, if you don't mind, Art. Yeah. Um, I think I just want to remind people in the industry that this is a novel virus, and I think that we're all being bombarded by this information every day, and we may find some complacency with all of that information. So I think it's important that um, we continue to acknowledge that, you know, the information that we have right now is limited and it might change and that we really need to keep up with the current information from your, you know, local regulatory authority and the health advisories. Yeah, and Katie, I would add one other thing, and that is um, years ago, like just post 9-11, I was operating utility at that time, and we were required by the Department of Homeland Security to conduct what was known as a vulnerability assessment of our drinking water system. And it was primarily to look at it from the context of what could potentially create uh, a damaged system that could affect public health and become a national security issue. And every utility in the United States was required under law to conduct that assessment and to develop a series of mitigation plans. And what I am hopeful about with this as a silver lining to this COVID-19 is that all of the utilities will go back to our shelves and pull those vulnerability assessments off the shelf because one of the things we were required to look at was if somehow, some way, Uh, some sort of contagion or biological component was injected into a drinking water system and how would our water systems respond. And so we learned a lot about how to protect ourselves, how to protect our communities, how to communicate to our communities and our customers through that exercise. And it was very, very valuable. And it would be interesting to see as a result of this event, how many of us go back now to those shelves and pull those plans off and either revise them or pull them out and say, gosh, yeah, we really did study this hard and we, we did take the right precautions or no, we didn't. We totally forgot about it or whatever, right? So I think those are um, really, really important lessons for us to remember that took place and we need to uh, continue to reinvent them and reinvigorate them into our, our operations today. Great. That's really interesting. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And thank you again, both of you. This was really helpful, and I am sure our listeners will enjoy and learn a lot as well. So thank you both so much. Thank you, Katie. Have a great day. Bye-bye. So thank you again for that interview, Art and Nicole. I really appreciate you both taking the time to talk with me. Um, I know everyone's work schedules and workflows are um, pretty um, unconventional right now, so I really appreciate it. And I think that they brought up some really interesting points. I know I really took to heart what Nicole said at the end of, you know, paying attention to your local government and municipality and staying up to date. It's kind of hard to be bombarded with, you know, new COVID-19 news every single day. But if we all do our part and listen to our local governments, then hopefully we can kind of get the situation stabilized. Um, so I know that, you know, for me, a lot of the points they brought up about combined sewer overflows were interesting, but also the use of technology. So I don't know what you and you, Bob and Lauren took away, but, uh, we could dive into that a little bit. 
you know, well, for me, her close or Nicole's closing remarks really resonated with me as well because this is an evolving situation. We don't know what the next week, what the next month, what the next year is going to bring. And I think it was really important that she wanted to stress that and bring that home for us and that it's, it's easy to try and tune out the noise, but to also keep your eyes and ears open because this is a completely shifting unknown territory we're facing right now. Yeah, I think the thing that resonated the most for me was the distance technology aspect and remote monitoring and whatnot. I did uh, have an interview with um, George Hawkins from Moonshot Missions and Albert Cho from Xylem on kind of the future of smart technologies and how this current environment that we're faced with right now, it seems to be accelerating the need for those and what that means for utility resist, uh, utility resilience in the future. Um, so I, I thought that that was particularly interesting that they also are seeing that same kind of trend happening um, with how things are at the moment. All right, so let's just dive into a little bit of housekeeping to wrap things up then. Bob, I think that Young Pro's nominations were extended. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? Yeah, so with the coronavirus, we ended up moving our Young Professionals section to the July issue of Water and Waste Digest instead of May. So we've extended the deadline for nominations for that until May 1st. So if you know of any young professionals 40 years or, or, or younger, um, do visit bit.ly slash WWD Young Pros nomination and fill out the form there. We will have a link also in our e-newsletter and in our show notes on our website for this episode so that you can quickly get there too. Um, but we do encourage you. We're, we've gotten a lot of nominations so far, and the more that we have, uh, the more representative of how great the young professionals are in the industry we will be able to showcase. So. Perfect. And then I am going to plug again that registration is open for the SWS Webinar Fest that is taking place from April 28th to the 30th. Um, there will be six webinars total to each day, and they are all worth PDH credits. And you can find the full lineup and register at www.swswebinarfest.com. So you can look out for us at future shows. Obviously, travel is a little bit delayed until the summertime at least, but I will be at the Texas Water Quality Association show in July. Um, currently is my plan. Um, and Bob and Katie can tell you where you can find them. Yeah, I don't have any scheduled stuff really until probably August or September. Right now, the, the next thing that I'm aware of is EFOT in September. That's in Munich, September 11th or 7th to 11th. Um, but that's the only show that I know between now and then that is still uh, full strength on. And I will be at the Ohio Stormwater Conference. That is now um, at the end of August. That was postponed. It was supposed to take place in May, but now it's at the end of August. So I will be there. Um, and that leaves us with a reminder to please like, subscribe, share on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Spotify. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at T-U-W Podcast. Um, and please reach us at TalkingUnderwater at SGCMail.com to share your thoughts. Thanks, listeners. Be safe. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Wash your hands. Thanks. Thank you, everyone. Oh, you're Stay not. safe and healthy. Thank <laughs> you.